Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. All right. As you know, I love the weather like this morning. I just so energized uh, by the cool weather. Um, As I was telling people earlier, I like dressing like a grandpa. And so I love cold weather because I could put on these nice warm layers and my hat. And that being said, I don't know what next summer is going to look like. I'm probably going to have a monster energy drink here and some fans, right, blowing up at me. Yeah, I'm so excited this morning. Uh, We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John. And we're going to go through John chapter 2. And so it took us uh, six, seven weeks to get through John chapter 1. And we're going to go through all of John chapter 2 today. And so this will probably be more of what it's going to look like as we go through the book. Um, If you were worried that it took us six or seven weeks and that it was going to take 20 years to finish the book, that's... I can assure you, you know, we'll, we'll get through other books together. <clears throat> so as I was reading John's chapter 2, I just had the, this um, theme going through my head of expectation. We all have expectations, right? And, you know, for instance, when we go to a wedding, we expect that we're going to see a bunch of nice dresses and flowers and cake and tears, right? We have that expectation. When we enter a church, we expect to to hear the gospel. We expect to see Bibles and hear prayers and hear songs. And yet sometimes our expectations are not met. And one of the reasons for that is because something has been promoted too much, right? Something has been hyped up too much. And so when we experience it, we're like, this, this is good, but this is not what I expected. And it's interesting then that in John chapter 1, that John went out of his way to build up and promote and endorse Jesus. Like insanely, right? Like Jesus is God, eternal. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the light and the life. Jesus is the truth in the flesh. Jesus is the lamb and the ladder. All these themes. And then after that, when people start meeting Jesus, what if they, they all start saying the same thing, right? John says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, Andrew is like, this is the Messiah. We found the Messiah. <laughs> uh, Philip, you know, we found the guy that the prophets talked about and Moses talked about. We found that guy. And then uh, Nathaniel saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. And so this incredible amount of expectation has been built up. You couldn't build up a person like Jesus any more than John chapter 1. And yet John does that knowing that you are not going to be let down. Like Jesus, you know, he's not hype. You are not going to be let down. So he he builds up this expectation so that we can get to John chapter 2 and we begin to see the ministry of Jesus. We get to meet Jesus, see how he interacts with people. And of course, it's very convicting and very cool and very transformative. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus show up at a wedding and then show up at a temple, which is a lot of people's favorite stories about Jesus are these two stories. 
And so this, so this morning, our sermon is called, Shows Up, Makes Wine, Flips Tables. Let me pray for us, church. O oh, great Heavenly Father, uh, worthy to be praised, Lord. May you be honored, Lord, by um, all of our worship, by, by the songs that we sing, by our thoughts this morning, by uh, the posture of our hearts, Lord. May Vanguard always, Lord, lift up the name of Jesus, make much of Jesus, Lord. And it, it's our joy to have your word um, to feast on this morning, Lord. Please bless our time together, Lord. Amen. And so let's start with this wedding. And so we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And as you know, weddings are a big deal, right? And so in Cana, like they are even a bigger deal. I'm going to argue that they are so much more a bigger deal right here. In fact, a wedding is the most important, or often the most important time in a person's life in this culture. There was feasting, food, wine, and music. And you're saying, well, that's what our weddings have, right? What makes it, like, more intense? Well, these weddings lasted a week. A week of that. Can you imagine? And so the bride and groom also, they got to wear crowns, like literal crowns they got to put on, right? Like, they are royalty. And in a sense... Um, they kind of were because it was the custom. If, if you knew the bride and groom, if they asked you to do anything that week of their wedding, you would do it for them. Like they were royalty. It's just so amazing. But on the other side of that, though, this is the wedding. So it's stressful, right? We've been in weddings there. They're so stressful, especially if you're in them or putting them together. It is so stressful. It is no different here. There's all sorts of expectations, Right? All these expectations in the culture. Um, also, legal expectations. So, legal. So, in this culture, one of the laws in place was you had to have enough wine for everybody who showed up. Enough wine, right, for everybody. And if you didn't, they could sue you. Like, yeah, they could sue you. So I mention that because that is great to know as we go into verse 3. It sort of frames this a little bit differently. <clears throat> In verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. And so his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So how many women here like to be called woman? No hands? Okay. <laughs> How about by your children? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that just happened. So yeah, let's, let's look at this verse 3 a little more. Um, and so yeah, we found out that there's no wine. And so we, we now know this is, uh, this is breaking a law. So this could be really dangerous, right? This could just ruin the marriage, get it off on the wrong step. And it's a bad look. <clears throat> In a little town like this, if this wedding is a flop, everybody's going to remember it. Oh, that's that wedding. They ran out of wine and we were bored. You know, it wasn't good. And so Mary doesn't want that to happen. So she tells Jesus, you know, they ran out of wine. And in verse 4, it's, you know, it says, Jesus says, woman, you know, gune in the Greek. What does this have to do with me? Like, seriously, why are you telling me? I'm not in charge of this wedding. Why are you even telling me about this? And so there's Three things I want us to understand about the, this verse this morning. 
The first is that woman is not an insult. It is not disrespectful. It is not degrading. In fact, this term Jesus uses for her is the same term he uses as he hangs on the cross. Remember in John 19, 26, which we'll get to in a, in a few weeks or months, <clears throat> when Jesus saw his mother and his, the disciple, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And so it's not derogatory at all. I mean, this is just the title that he calls her. But having said that, it's still not the title that you would expect a son to call his mother. It lacks familial intimacy, right? It's just, yeah, why, why would he say that? And to see why, we could see, you know, it says, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? This isn't my business. And again, this is not as insulting as it sounds, right? It sounds horrible. Um, and it is a pushback, don't get me wrong. It's not an insult, but Jesus is pushing back, like, why are you telling me? And to understand this a little better, we have to go back to chapter 1, the very last verse, it's probably nearby where you are, 51 in chapter 1, where it says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So the Son of Man this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. This is what Jesus calls himself. So we know this is Jesus' favorite title, Son of Man. It's all over the Old Testament. It's used over 100 times in the New Testament for Jesus and finds really its meaning in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed." And so Jesus is here now to set up a kingdom, right? He's here to inaugurate this kingdom. But he's going to do it as the Son of Man. As of right now, as he begins his public ministry, he is the Son of Man, which has an implication. He also can't be in the same way the Son of Woman, the Son of Mary. Not in the same way anymore, not in the same context. After all, Mary is going to need a Savior too, so this relationship has to change. I mean, Jesus loves his mom. He wants to save his mom. So this relationship has to change. Jesus has a divine purpose, a divine purpose that trumps everything else, even his, the concerns of his mom, even the chores and requests of his mom. And so, yeah, these things don't have anything to do with him. And then he reminds her of his purpose when he says, my hour has not yet come. And so the hour here, it's not like a, a 60 minutes. It's not about a certain hour in time, but it's about the hour in time. Jesus came for this hour for a moment. His whole life is about a moment where he goes to be our sacrificial lamb, right? All of his life is about this hour, his suffering, death, and resurrection hour. And we will see this hour mentioned throughout the gospel. We'll keep hearing this expression, the hour. And he's talking about that moment. Everything builds toward that moment. And yet, despite this pushback against Mary, I think here's where we see like, that it really wasn't harsh. 
and that they do have a good relationship, and they really do understand each other. Because after Jesus tells her this, her response is she just looks at everybody else and just says, hey, do whatever he tells you. Like, she knows. They have a good relationship. They both know what's going on. So it's not as bad as it seems. So do whatever he tells you. What does Jesus do? Let's read verses 6 through 10. There were, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it out to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So what did Jesus do? He turns water into wine. Great wine, as a matter of fact, like the best wine. I'm not a wine guy myself. I, don't, I couldn't tell you what's good or not. But I mean, can you imagine this heavenly wine that's just been created? And so Jesus does what his, what his mother asks. And by making this wine, an estimated, I can't even really fathom this, 180 gallons? 180 gallons of wine he's made. And everybody's already drunk a lot of wine up until this point. So Jesus, by doing this, spares the bride and groom's shame. So right off the bat, this is not going to be like the loser wedding, right? This is going to be the wedding people talk about that just had all the great wine and had plenty of it. In addition to this, he's also giving them a gift because wine is not cheap. And so when you have, you know, they're, they're probably not going to have 180 gallons left, but they're going to have a lot left of heavenly tasting wine. And so we can infer by the fact they didn't have enough wine, they're probably, you know, not well off, maybe even poor. And now they have this gift of incredible value. So it's really awesome. But the point uh, that Jesus was a good wedding guest or a good winemaker, um, that's not the point of this historical story. The point is that he made water into wine. This was a miracle. The first miracle, right? This is the introduction into Jesus' ministry. This is where everybody's going to start seeing, whoa, this guy, this guy is different, right? And we read this in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And that's kind of interesting. Aside from Nathaniel, this is the first time the other disciples believed. They were already following, right? They were already following Jesus, but they were following the expectation. They were following the hype that, that this might be who he says he is. They were following the recommendation of John, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. And in this moment, they're just like, yep, yep, this, this is the guy who we thought he was. And so they begin to believe, which is the whole point of miracles, is to believe. That's the whole reason John talks about miracles, is he wants us to believe in Jesus. So when John says that Jesus, you know, makes a sign, that this is a sign, it's a sign that, yes, Jesus is absolutely who he says he is. And because he is who he is, you should believe in him. And so when we come across miracles, we're going to notice that, that it's a sign to who Jesus is. But also, almost every miracle points to something else. 
to Jesus, yes, that Jesus is God, but the, the miracles themselves point to something different. And so the point of this miracle is not to say, to show that Jesus had mad winemaking skills, right? That is not the point of this. We serve a God who makes good wine. The point of this is not to say that we need to gather 180 gallons of wine, right? That, that's just what happened. That's not the point. And so let's look at three points, right? The three things this miracle of water to wine points to. The first is that the old has gone and the new has come. In verse 6, again, it says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So these six giant jars of water are there to clean, right? They're to clean yourself. In the Old Testament law, right, you need to clean yourself in order to be ceremonially clean and pure. And by choosing these jars of all things, right, to use these jars, Jesus is saying these, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is about to change. This is going to look a lot different. This is going to be something new and better. And notice he doesn't smash them or do away with them. He's not getting rid of the Old Testament. He's not getting rid of the law, but he's reframing it. And so now what Jesus is saying is you no longer have to cleanse yourselves and purify yourselves on the outside. But through him, that new wine, we're actually going to become pure and cleansed from within. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this is the reality of the passing away of the old and the beginning of the new. Jesus has essentially transformed transformation itself, which leads to the second point this miracle points to, is the power of transformation. And yes, this is probably the most obvious. This is the one we all get, right? The power of God to transform something. Not just the transformation of covenants, but the literal ability to transform reality. Like transform reality as we know it. To do something that has no logical explanation, you know, which, is, which makes it a miracle, right? That's what makes it a miracle. This shouldn't happen. It can't happen, and yet, you know, we see it happen. And so in this, we see that God can change us, right? make us children of God, not just by name, but substance in reality can change reality of what we are and who we are, making us more like him. Again, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we have the ability, or Jesus has the ability to transform us into something new, right? And to give us joy, which is the third point. True joy that just gets better. So in this era, um, there's a lot of writings by rabbis, right, on their thoughts about everything. And one of those writings, one of those sayings was, without wine, there is no joy. Which, yes, says a lot about those rabbis, Right? <clears throat> but it also shows that when Mary is, is telling Jesus they're out of wine, she's essentially saying they are out of joy. There's no more joy in this wedding. Because the reality is, as they experienced, and we experienced um, adults here, uh, that wine runs out. And not just wine, not just alcohol, but whatever our joy comes in, whatever that might be, 
You know, even if our sports team wins the championship, the next year they don't, right? And so joy will go away. It will run out. And that's why the joy in Christ, this new wine, it doesn't run out. And if we look at the text here, it says, you know, as it goes on, it gets better, right? The more you have of it, at the end, it actually gets better, which I can attest to. I hear so many people tell me like, oh man, Christian, that sounds boring. Why would you want to do that? That, that sounds, it, just, it doesn't sound good. It sounds like it can get old real fast. Like who, who wants to do that? And then I could tell that person has never experienced Jesus because it gets better. You know, I've been doing this over 20 years now. It gets better. I'm more excited today than I was the first day that I was a Christian. And this joy, even like we see in this situation when all things seem grim and hopeless, it's that joy that tastes its sweetest when life is at its most bitter, when it's at its most frightening and stressful. That, that wine just tastes so awesome. Now, there's a lot of verses on joy in the Bible. We won't go through all of them today, um, so we can finish today. Um, but 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like crazy joy. Like this is awesome. This is an awesome joy that we have. This reminds me of the words of John Piper, which you may have heard. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Like that's the point. God doesn't want us to believe in him. God wants us to have our joy in him right? Joy, not just thoughts, but an emotional response, giving our lives over to him sacrificially in joy. So I'm telling you, that's when you will find the most joy, when you stop holding on to everything and trying to, to grasp God at the same time. And it's not a coincidence that this first miracle takes place at a wedding, right? The whole purpose of this, the ministry for which Jesus came, the hour he says that he's coming for to do for us, to be our sacrificial lamb which takes away our sin, is to get us to another hour, right? The hour where we will be with him forever, right? At the, at the marriage lamb ceremony in Revelation 19.9. Everything about this is setting up a wedding. Everything about our faith is moving towards this wedding that we are going to have with Jesus. And so now, we'll go to the second part of the sermon which we're going to go from the joy of the wedding in Canaan to what should be the joy of the temple in Jerusalem. It should be. So let's read them going from the wedding. <clears throat> in verses 12 and 13. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, just a side note, one thing we want to kind of keep an eye on as we go through this gospel is that all of Jesus' ministry is framed around the Passover. And again, John is a good writer. This isn't coincidence. He wants you to know everything about Jesus is about the fact that he is the lamb, right? Everything is about he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So his ministry is always surrounded around the Passover. And so Jesus goes to this temple in Jerusalem. I guess he's super excited, like he's going to his house. I mean, it, he's going to be welcomed. Like this is, 
he's just going to be so welcome there. He's going to be so pleased that his father is being worshipped. And while it is true that God is bigger than any temple, there is an expectation in place that God has already established that he will meet men in the temple. And again, many verses, but we can see one in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God shows up at temples. So yes, is God bigger than the temple? Yes. But expectation God has said is, yes, I will meet you here. So show up to the temple. And so Jesus is showing up. And even if there's not a cloud in the temple that day, there's still the expectation. There's going to be awe, right? An awe of God. There's going to be humility. There's going to be singing and praying and confession. And yet if you've read this story, you know that's not what Jesus finds. So what does Jesus find? Let's take a look in verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus shows up and he's expecting that they're expecting him, right? They should be looking for the Messiah. And so the Messiah shows up and and they don't know who he is. And instead he sees those who are selling oxen, sheep and pigeons and money changers. And so what should it have been like? What was the expectation? Man, it should have been awesome. There should have been animal sacrifices, which if you've ever smelled barbecue, yes, it smells really good. Uh, if you've smelled bread being cooked, smells really good. And now add oil and incense to that. That should have been what this place smelled like. Instead, it smells like live animals. Live animals and the messes that live animals make. Instead of hearing the sound of prayer and confession and the law being read, you have the sound that, of animals, of live animals, and you have the sound of coins and money exchanging. So if you've ever been into a casino, like being overwhelmed by a bad smell and the sound of coins, that, that's what's taking place in the temple. And of course, there's a couple of huge problems. One is the corruption of the people who are there, the money changers who would ch- charge people, we know, a day's wage just to change currency, completely ripping people off. Then you had animal inspectors, because the animals had to be of a certain quality. So you had to bribe the inspector to tell you that your perfect animal was perfect. And so they were making money off this. And so Jesus is not like that. But on top of that, Jesus is more mad about where they're doing it. They're doing it in his father's house. The place he should have felt most at home and the most welcomed. And like anyone whose parents' house is being disrespected, he gets mad, right? 
He starts kicking people out and not asking politely, but he's saying, get out, right? Get out of here. What are you guys doing? Go home. Get out of here. He makes a whip and starts chasing people out. And it's because of Jesus' love. He does this out of love, love for his Father and love for his church. And you may say, okay, but where's the grace in that? They're in the temple. Like, isn't that a good place for people to be? And the answer is no. Because notice he says, my father's house. He doesn't say our father's house. These aren't people of the faith. These are just shady business guys. You know, whatever you want to call it, gangsters, like drug dealers. Like, they have no reason to be here. They weren't people of the faith. And so Jesus is offended. They're making a mockery of his father. What makes this worse is this takes place in the court of the Gentiles, which is one side of the temple. And this is a really important side of the temple because if you are not Jewish and you want to come worship the Lord, the one true Lord, you have to come to this side of the temple. But what would Gentiles think coming to their first Passover, or maybe they don't even know anything about it, they just, they just heard about the Passover and they're coming and showing up. What would they think about the Lord? Who wants to convert to a religion of extortion? This, this is horrible. It's embarrassing. And so Jesus is mad. Jesus is angry because of his love. Because love presupposes hate. Love presupposes hate. And what I mean by that is I, I hope you all realize I'm pretty laid back, right? I'm a pretty laid back guy. But try hurting one of my kids. See what side you see of me that you've never seen before. And I think I could say the same of all of us. If somebody hurts your wife, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, or your church, you get super angry, right? Of course you're going to, you know, if you had a whip, you would chase people out. Of course you would, because of love, because of love. And so on the one hand, this, this should excite us and bring us joy that Jesus loves his church so much, like he loves us that much. But it also must make us sober when we consider how we do worship and what we're doing here every Sunday. Although we don't have live animals in the foyer here or in churches, I believe, across the country, I also see on the TV and here on the radio the peddling of the prosperity gospel. And so people trying to make money off of the Lord. How do you think Jesus feels about that? Oh my gosh, I do not want to be that person. Are you kidding me? And what about us here today? What about those who are already in church, you know, and they're not bringing animals, and they're not doing business in church? But consider what um, Kent Hughes says about this, about those who are already in worship. Even when we sit in church, the bazaars of suburbia can be spinning throughout our heads. We may be thinking about the next business deal we are going to close, athletic events that await us, shopping trips, or bridge parties. Oh, man. <laughs> right? That's, that's leaning into it. So yeah, we might not see what's happening in the temple here, but is that what's happening in our heads? When we're here in church, are we worshiping God? Are we present? Are our thoughts on the Lord? Because that's what Jesus' expectation is. That we, all of our thoughts, all of our worship should be about the Father. And so in this story of this temple, we find what people call righteous anger right? Justifiable anger. 
hey, Jesus got angry, right? That's, that's what we learn here. Like, you know, what, what do we do with that? What do we take out of this story? And I can tell you what's usually taken out of this story is that people will use this to justify their anger, right? If, if Jesus can get angry, and righteously so, then I can get angry as well. And don't get me wrong, believe me, I agree, there is such thing as righteous anger. I'm not saying there's not. But if your life is more about righteous anger instead of joy, and joy in Christ, then we need to rethink, you know, rethink our lives. And so another application that we can take from this, we could frame around 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, home you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so we are temples that belong to God, that are supposed to glorify God. So like the temple in Jerusalem, that's what we're supposed to function as, right? And so that's why I ask, what is your life about? Is it bringing glory to God? Does it have joy? And if not, what we need to do is take this righteous anger we have, take this zeal we have, and apply it to our own lives first. Go into our own lives and flip over the tables of those things that are blocking our joy in the Lord. This is repentance, right? If you don't have joy, like if you're a Christian and you don't have joy in your life, there's something that shouldn't be in your life. And so maybe the reason you're angry, righteous or not, is, is because you're blocking this joy, because you're supposed to repent of something. And so go through your life, go through your thought life and ask, if Jesus was looking at this, what would he think? What would he do? Would he flip this over? Am I in a relationship that's impure? Would Jesus chase this person off with the whip? If someone else saw your thoughts, if somebody else saw your life and what you do and what you say and what you think and what you buy, what would they think about the Lord? And so I say in love, it's time to start turning over some tables in our lives so that we can experience joy. You will notice a difference in your life, I promise you. Others will notice a difference in your life. You know, and if you're in this culture, people will notice if you literally do it in the temple, as we see here in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, who had just witnessed all this, probably jaws on the floor, uh, what sign do you show for us doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? Like, bro, what are you doing? Who are you? And notice that they don't say he was wrong. They never say what he did was wrong because they had to have known, of course. He's done, he did what we should have done a long time ago. But so who is this guy? They want a sign, right? Because there's, there's a rumor going around there might be a Messiah type showing up, you know, so they want, they want a God-like sign. And so Jesus understands them. He listens to them and he gives them a response. Starting in verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. I love his answer. It's the best and most honest answer that Jesus could possibly give. You want a godlike sign? I'm going to conquer death, right? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. He gives them the sign that they are looking for, <clears throat> but they miss it, right? They still miss it. And then all of a sudden, for some reason that, that does not explain to us, now they care about the temple, right? The temple, they have turned into this psychotic circus, right? This casino farm animal type thing. And now they're concerned about the temple. <clears throat> and for some reason, they can't get over it. We'll see this throughout this entire gospel. People, it's like, that's the guy who said he was going to destroy the temple. In Matthew 26, like they're trying to get Jesus, you know, executed. And that's what they bring up. They bring up the fact he said this. In Matthew 27, 40, Jesus is already on the cross. They're getting what they want, right? Jesus is being executed. He's already on the cross. And they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. It's so odd that they hung on to that, that they hung on. Maybe it's just religion they're hanging on to. The temple was that important to them that they couldn't get, out, go, get over the fact that someone said that they would destroy it. And so they completely don't understand and miss the fact that Jesus going to the cross is what made him the lamb that will take away the sin of the world. And the sign they asked for, his resurrection, is the sign that he is God and that he conquered death. And so they completely miss it. The one who could turn water into wine can turn death into life. It's true. And I love in verse 22 that it says the disciples understood after the fact. It's like, oh yeah, like hindsight. Like, yeah, we knew the whole time. But I love the fact it also says they didn't. Like, so the Jews, like they missed it. The disciples missed it the first time around, but we can't miss it. We can't miss it. That the resurrection is the sign that God is who he says he is. That he can recreate us and make us new and fill us with joy. So church, let's be honest. <clears throat> let's be honest about the faith that we have in Jesus. Do we have that joy? Do we have that joy? If not, we really have to ask ourselves, A, if we have faith in Jesus, if we really believe in Jesus, who he is, what he has done, or if we believe that, yes, of course I believe in Jesus, and if you don't have that joy, then what do you need to get rid of in your life? Who do you have to chase away? What do you have to knock over to get that joy? Jesus knows how we really feel. And we see this to end chapter 2, the final three verses, starting in verse 23. And now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus is all-knowing. He knows what is in us. So let us make sure our faith is true. Let us make sure we're not like those in the temple who didn't know when the Messiah showed up. Let us not be like those in the temple who were, were here, but our mind is on business that isn't about God. And let us be a church who finds our joy in the Lord, 
in that new wine and let us bring glory to God. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.